0: Today we're beginning a new expository preaching series through the book of Hebrews. As a pastoral team, we're very excited about this series. The title of it is The Supremacy of Christ, The Supremacy of Jesus Christ. Our sermon text this morning is Hebrews 1, uh, verses 1 to 4. And Some of you may recall Jared Mellinger gave a wonderful New Year's sermon based on this very text just two weeks ago. Uh, And his sermon focused primarily on what it means, that Christ is our prophet. And though there's a degree of overlap with Jared's message, as this is the very same text, my goal for today's sermon is a bit different. My aim today is to help us to consider this entire passage, all four verses. I'll also give some context and highlight key themes in Hebrews. This will, I trust, help prepare us for our journey through Hebrews in the weeks and months ahead. With that, let us now prepare our hearts to be addressed by God himself. You're in Hebrews 1. These are the words of God. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Verse 3. He, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word today. Lord, thank you especially for how your word reveals Christ to us. So, Father, we ask You now, we ask You now by Your Holy Spirit, through Your Word, open the eyes of our hearts to the glory of our Savior Jesus, and thereby strengthen our faith, our trust, our confidence in Him. Increase our faith, O Lord, in Jesus, in order that we might greatly glorify You, in whatever trials we may face, both in 2024, this year, and beyond. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, and everyone said, together, amen. Amen. As we begin this new series in Hebrews, I want to start off by providing some background, some context. In so so doing, the first thing we should note is that we don't have nearly as much information about this book as we do other New Testament books. The author is unknown. Scholars have suggested a variety of possibilities, including the Apostle Paul, as well as Paul's close associates, Barnabas and Apollos. However, we do not know for sure the author's exact identity the exact location of this church or churches is unknown as well. Biblical scholars have proposed several possible locations. Uh, Many scholars lean towards Rome as the most plausible among them, but again, uh, we cannot know for certain. It is highly likely that the first recipients of this letter were a house church or a group of house churches made up of predominantly Jewish Christians, thus the title of the book Hebrews. It's commonly believed that the first recipients were Jewish in large part because the author assumes intimate knowledge of the various elements of temple worship, a knowledge that most Gentiles simply uh, would not possess. This epistle, you'll notice it's written a little differently than some of the other epistles, In the New Testament, it's written in sermon form, not letter form. This indicates that this letter was to be read out loud in the public gathering of church, in an assembly like this. In terms of time frame of when this letter was written, uh, the many references in Hebrews to temple worship provide a very important clue. In 70 A.D., as some of you may know, the Romans destroyed the Jerusalem temple. And it is noteworthy that the author of Hebrews nowhere speaks of a destroyed temple. Instead, he speaks as though the temple system of worship was still in full operation. And so this points to a likely authorship date sometime prior to when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. This point of context is super helpful um, in in piecing together the situation that the original readers were likely facing. It is commonly known that in the years leading up to 70 A.D., the Roman Empire was growing increasingly hostile towards the Christian faith. We also know from history that, that during the reign of Nero, this hostility eventually led to the brutal execution of many Christians including possibly the apostles Peter and Paul. So at the time Hebrews was written, it clearly wasn't an easy time to be a Christian in the Roman Empire, and from the text itself, from the text itself, it is evident that the original readers anticipated and feared increased persecution by the Romans. Some indeed had already experienced the plundering of their property. Chapter 10, verse 34. So, with intensified persecution likely looming right around the corner, we see in Hebrews that some in this church were tempted to abandon the Christian faith. They were tempted to abandon the Christian faith and return to the comfortable confines of the Jewish church. Religion. The reason for this was in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, Judaism was an accepted religion. When Christianity first began, it it was viewed as merely a sect of Judaism, and as such, Christianity at the time of, of its inception, it was also deemed acceptable. However, over time, as Christianity uh, as Christianity developed its own distinct identity. Apart from the Jewish faith, to identify as a Christian invited increasing hostility and increasing persecution. So uh, the real, the very real temptation these Jewish believers faced was to, ab- to abandon the Christian faith. It was to forsake Christ and to return to Judaism because that is what was that is what was saved. And the author of Hebrews wrote this book as a concerned pastor in order to exhort his readers to not do that. He wrote this book in order to exhort them to not play it safe. He wrote this book to exhort them to not compromise, to not, to not exchange Christ, to not trade in Christ for temporal comfort and temporal ease. He said don't do that, but instead he, ex- he exhorted them to see Christ. Christ as the all glorious, all majestic, supreme God and Savior that He is. And then, in light of who Jesus is, He exhorts them to persevere. He says, Look, this is who He is. And now, in light of how awesome and incredible and amazing He is, He exhorted them to persevere, to remain loyal to Jesus, loyal to their Savior, even if that Loyalty costs them everything, even if it costs them their very lives. Now today, obviously, obviously the circumstances are, are quite different. Our circumstances are different. While hostility to the Christian faith is certainly on the rise, Nero, like persecution of believers, does not appear to be right on top of us. It does not appear to be right in front of us, and thankfully, by God's grace, I am also not aware of any Grace Community Church member who is in imminent danger of abandoning the Christian faith. Even so, even so, history bears witness to the fact that the temptation to be unfaithful to Christ in exchange for cultural acceptance, approval, and an easier life is common. It is common to every Generation. I'm going to say that again because there was some noise there. <laughs> History bears witness to the fact that the temptation to be unfaithful to Christ in exchange for cultural acceptance, approval, and an easier life is common to every generation. Try and stay with me. <laughs> so severe persecution, okay? Okay. Severe persecution, we don't have that here in the United States. Other parts of the world, yes, but not here right, at least right now. But temptation, in varying degrees, to be unfaithful to Jesus in exchange for cultural acceptability? Do we have that? Yes. We have that. And such uh, faithlessness to Jesus usually is expressed. In one of two forms. First, jettisoning doctrine that is deemed unacceptable and reprehensible to the culture. And or secondly, conforming to the world by yielding to sin. Not repenting of it and excusing it. So how can we, how can Christians today be unfaithful to Christ? Jettisoning doctrine that is reprehensible to the culture. Secondly, conforming to the world by living just like the world does. And the original recipients of this letter, as we will see in the weeks ahead, they experienced both of these temptations. And again, we do too. For Christians today, taking a public stand for righteousness and for biblical truth, it won't get you killed, but it could get you canceled. You might lose your job or worse. On top of that, the world, the flesh and the devil, the world, the flesh and the devil, daily beckon Christians to compromise our morality, our conduct, our behavior. And truth be told, secular culture relishes when Christians do that. Secular culture relishes when Christians yield to sin, because when they do, it litig- legitimizes accusations of hypocrisy and in their minds thereby invalidates the biblical truth and the biblical gospel that we proclaim. I think you all would heartily agree it is nigh impossible for the church to effectively call the world to repent if our own lives don't reflect deep repentance and deep holiness of life. We all well know The temptation to yield to the flesh, to remaining sin in various ways, is ever-present in every era. And every time we sin, we face two choices. We can either repent and continue to strive after holiness, strive after the holiness without which we cannot see the Lord, as the author of Hebrews talks about, When we sin, we can either repent, continue to pursue holiness, or we can excuse our sin. We can tolerate sin, or worse, we can indulge our sin. I trust you know the latter options I just mentioned there, they all represent disloyalty and infidelity to Christ, and they greatly damage the witness of the church of the Lord Jesus So the question is, what can steady our feet in the midst of pressures within and pressures without? What can steady our feet in the midst of pressures within and pressures without and keep us from compromise in both belief and behavior, creed and conduct, doctrine and life? What can keep us? What can keep you and me? What can keep the church from dangerous, soul-destroying, witness-destroying, compromise? Well, the answer is the same as it was for the first recipients of this letter. Here's what can keep us from compromise. Clear vision of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, when we see Christ Jesus for who He truly is, When God, by His Holy Spirit, opens the eyes of our hearts and we see Him clearly as the Son of God and as the Savior of our souls, well, that elicits the kind of unwavering allegiance and sacrificial devotion that has caused countless Christians over the centuries to joyfully suffer even martyrdom for the sake of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, The book of Hebrews imparts that kind of vision. It imparts the kind of compelling vision of Jesus Christ we so desperately need in order to glorify God and remain steadfastly committed to Christ. No matter what sorrows, no matter what sufferings, and no matter what persecutions may in the due course of time come our way. The main theme of Hebrews as well as our sermon today, could be summarized like this. Christian stability and faithfulness comes. Here's how it comes. Through clear vision of who Jesus is and what he has done. Where does Christian stability, where does Christian faithfulness, Christian steadiness, where where does it come from? I want to know. Hebrews helps us. It comes through clear vision of Jesus. Clear vision of who Jesus is, and clear vision of what he has done. I trust as we look more closely at our passage today, you will see this theme begin to emerge. So with that, let us now consider a survey of the text. In verse 1, track along with me, because I'm just going to right here for the next couple of minutes just go straight through through the text. So I have, hope you got have your Bibles open or your phones, phone apps out and are ready Uh, to look down your Bibles as we go along. In verse 1, the author begins this letter by reminding his original readers of how in their history as a people, God spoke to them. He spoke to them, the text says, through the prophets. But now, verse 2, in these last days, the author says, God has now spoken finally, conclusively, decisively to his people through his Son. Here is in the rest of the New Testament, the last days, that phrase it refers to the time period between the first and second advents of Christ. The time period between the first Christmas and the final return of the Lord. So in the past, in the past, God spoke to his people through the Old Testament prophets. But now, in these last days, in this time period, in this era in redemptive history, God has spoken to us through His Son. And the point is, as Jared pointed out several weeks ago, Christ uniquely reveals God to people. Christ uniquely reveals God to us. And is superior to the Old Testament prophets. Continuing on in verse 2. We see God appointed His Son as heir of all things, meaning God the Father has given His Son as an inheritance all things. That is, God has given Jesus an inheritance, absolutely everything in the universe that exists. The Son of God is also the one through whom the world was created. He is the Creator. Verse 3, the sun is also the radiance of God's glory. He perfectly reflects, Jesus perfectly reflects God's glory. He is the exact imprint of his nature. That is, Christ is not only truly human, he was truly God. He is divine. And as such, Christ Jesus sustains, maintains, and upholds the entire universe. By the word of his power. We heard about this in the New City Catechism this morning. The Son of God not only created everything, he sustains everything. He even now in this very moment sustains every atom and every molecule that exists. Including the chair that you're sitting on right now. (laughs) Continuing in verse 3. After providing for our cleansing of and purification from sin through his atoning death on the cross, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. This indicates what Christ declared before he breathed his last on the cross. It is finished. There was no sacrifice for sin left. It was finished. So Jesus sat down. As a result of Christ's exaltation to the right hand of God, Jesus inherited a name superior to that of the angels. That is verse 4, demonstrating, as one scholar put it, the Son who has always been the exalted God has now been exalted as man. So when Christ ascended to the Father, He ascended with his human body. The Son in eternity past had always been exalted as God. But now, through his exaltation, following his death and resurrection, he was exalted as a human being. He was exalted as a man as he sat down to rule over all things. At the right hand of God. What a glorious vision of Jesus Christ these verses give us. So we have considered an overview of the text. I now want to draw from it two key lessons regarding Christian stability and faithfulness that we will encounter time and again Throughout this book, two lessons regarding Christian stability and faithfulness. First, first lesson. Christian stability and maturity comes through clear vision of who Jesus is. Christian stability and maturity comes through clear vision of who Jesus is. When trials come and our souls are shaken and our hearts are troubled, often what we think we most need is for the trial to disappear, for the trial to vanish and to go away. When the checking account is empty, what we tend to think we most need is an inflow of cash. When a health crisis arises, what we tend to think we most need is physical healing. When cultural forces press in upon the church, tempting us to drift from both sound doctrine and holy living, we can think that what we most need is for those forces to be lessened or removed altogether. When the reality that is not what we most need. When we face trials and sorrows and sufferings of various kinds, what we most need is not for them to be removed. But thankfully, God, sometimes in his mercy, does that. Rather, what we most need is vision. What we most need is clear vision of who Jesus is. Because when by faith we see Jesus Christ as incomparably great, infinitely majestic, and supremely glorious, well then the relative magnitude of our trials and tribulations diminishes. When we see Christ as infinitely glorious, the relative magnitude of our trials and tribulations They lose their power to cast a spell of fear, discouragement, and evil and hopelessness over our souls. Furthermore, when we see Christ for who he really is, for who he truly is, our faith is strengthened. Peace, the peace of God comes. Our joy is renewed. I'm reminded in this of Jesus and his disciples in the boat upon the sea when a fierce storm arose. Waves crashed into the boat, and the boat filled with water. Where was Jesus? Asleep. You know the story. Asleep in the stern of the boat. And the disciples. They were terrified. So they woke Jesus up. They didn't just wake him up. They chastised him. They rebuked him saying, Lord, do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? In response, Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. He said, peace. Be still. And a great calm came over the water. And do you remember what happened next? Remember? Jesus asked them, Why are you so afraid? You know, Don't you get it, Jesus? Waves crashing in the boat. Jesus says, Why are you so afraid? And then he goes on, Have you still no faith? In other words, Jesus was saying to his disciples, Don't you by now know who I am? Because if you did... If you did, if you truly grasped who was with you in the boat, if you truly got it, well, then at the time the waves were crashing in over the side of the boat upon you, if you knew who I was, you would not have been so utterly shaken and terrified to the core. In a similar way, in the book of Hebrews, the author was saying to his original audience in essence. So you're terrified? of The waves of persecution towering over you, threatening to harm you and your family and possibly take your life? Then I ask you, do you you not realize who it is that is with with you in the boat? Hebrews, it seems you have forgotten. So let me again introduce you to Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews. Welcome to Jesus Christ. This is who he is. And now in light of that, the author says to them, he encourages them, he exhorts them, he says, I exhort you, don't abandon Christ. Here's who Jesus is, now I exhort you, don't abandon Christ. But instead, place all your hope. Place all your faith. Every ounce of it. All your trust in Him, and in so doing, experience God's abiding peace. To that end, chapters 1 to 10 are extremely focused on the identity of Jesus Christ. Chapters 1 to 10 are extremely focused on who He is. We saw moments ago how, right at the outset, in verses 1 to 4, the author focuses our attention on Christ as God's supreme revelation of himself to mankind. These verses also focus on his exalted identity. You see what's happening? Here's Jesus. He is God, He is His creator, He is sustainer, He is redeemer. The author then continues through chapter 10 to extol Christ as supreme over all. Thus the title of our series, The Supremacy of Christ. Chapters 1-10 to highlight Jesus' superiority over Abraham, Moses, and the angels, as well as the Old Covenant priesthood. In chapter 11, the famous Hall of Faith chapter... (laughs) as an application of Christ's supremacy over all things. The author then exhorts his audience to emulate the faith in the Lord modeled by the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Moses, and many others. In chapter 12, he encourages them in these trials, famous verse, to fix your eyes on Jesus. In these trials you're facing, Hebrews, fix your eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of your faith. And in chapter 13, he encourages them to remember that God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, for the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Commenting on this verse, 18th century Preacher John Gill writes this. The Lord is my helper. He is able to help and does help when none else can. He has promised to be the helper of His people. He has laid help for them on Christ who is mighty. So you can see this book as a whole has a cumulative effect similar to Jesus questioning His disciples why are you so afraid? Again, God by the Holy Spirit says to the first readers of this book and to us as well in your trials in your tribulations in your sufferings why? Are you so afraid? Do you not know who I am? Do you not know who is your helper? Do you not know that Christ, who is mighty, is with you in the boat? Whatever trials you are going through today, dear brother, Dear sister, I pray that God by his Holy Spirit today and in this series would comfort you in the knowledge of who is with you in the boat, in the storms, and in the trials that you face. As the year 2024 begins, I I want to submit to you, Grace Community Church, That there is nothing we need more this year and in the year beyond than a clear vision of the Christ who is mighty and will never leave or forsake us, no matter what trials, hardships, and sorrows we may in fact experience. And I can think of no better book to help grant us that kind of clear vision than Hebrews you all well know on our journey to heaven we all every one of us face trials and difficulties of various kinds these trials range from the mundane problems of life to severe hardships And if we want to remain stable in our faith and faithful to Christ and glorify, and glorify Christ in the midst of them, if we want to do that, I suggest to you we will spend much time in 2024 and in the years ahead contemplating, meditating upon, considering Jesus Christ. Because Christ And Christ alone is the only true source of peace, joy, and stability that there is in the entire universe. And that is true no matter what the specific trial is that you or I may be facing. No matter what the specific trial is, hear me on this. If I don't trust Christ, if my ultimate peace and security is not found in Him, if I'm not trusting in Christ, well, my soul's going to be restless, anxious, fearful, discouraged, and weighed down. But if in a spirit of meekness and humility, I depend on Christ, I rely on Christ. I trust in Christ. Well, then I can experience the peace of God which passes all understanding. And you know what? I can do that no matter what comes my way. That's how incredible Jesus is. Dear brothers and sisters, that's how awesome and magnificent Glorious He is. That no matter what comes our way, it is possible for our souls to be at rest and at peace. That, of course, doesn't mean that our trials are easy. But it does mean that even in the midst of a painful trial, even in the midst of the waves crashing, we can be different than the disciples were we don't have to panic we don't have to be terrified to the core but our souls can be at peace because Christian stability and faithfulness comes first through clear vision of who Jesus is and second point it comes through clear vision of what Christ has done Clear vision of what Jesus has done. Verse 4 of our passage speaks of how Jesus made purification. You see it? You see it there. It's actually uh, verse 3. After making purification for sins. This is a reference to Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross, which is a major theme in Hebrews. Hebrews Uh, Many of you know this because you've read the book. It makes much of Jesus' high priestly work. It explains, especially in chapters 4 to 10, what it means that Jesus is our great high priest who made atonement for our sins. It also explains the practical implications of the fact that he's our great high priest who made atonement for our sins, the implications for our lives. In this, Hebrews is an enormous help to us. It holds out for us the glory of Jesus' saving work. It says to us, look at Jesus. Behold the glory of what he accomplished for you on the cross. And now, here are the implications. In light of the glorious salvation Christ has secured for you on the cross... God's Word in Hebrews says we can have solid reason to not drift away from Christ. Chapter 2. We can know Christ as our Sabbath rest. Chapter 4. We can with confidence draw near to God. Chapter 4. In view of what Jesus accomplished at Calvary, Hebrews tells us we can know that God counts not our sins against us. Chapter 8, we can have a clean conscience sprinkled by the blood of Christ. Chapters 9 and 10. In view of what Jesus has done for us, we can accept the loss of earthly goods and possessions for Christ's sake. Even with joy, chapter 10. Because of Christ's death on the cross, Hebrews helps us to see we can live lives of ongoing faith and trust in God, chapter 11. We can live lives of holiness and godliness, chapter 12. We can persevere in the faith and receive the discipline of the Lord when it comes our way. And because of his death, we can rest secure that the one who gave his life for us He's also the one who says, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. In a commonly used phrase, the book of Hebrews helps us to be Christ-centered or gospel-centered, which is one of our seven shared values as a family of churches. Hebrews helps us to connect the person and work of Jesus Christ to daily living which again is critical for our maturity and our faithfulness as Christians. Years ago, I was reading a book by uh, J.I. Packer when I came across the following quote, which I think helps us to understand why the centrality of the gospel and Christ's death on the cross is so critical for Christian living. I think this quote also captures how Hebrews can be such a great help to us. So Packer writes this. The cross of Christ is the heart of the apostles' gospel and of their piety and praise as well. Listen carefully. So surely it ought to be central in our own proclamation, catechesis, that just means discipleship, and devotional practice. True Christ-centeredness is and ever must be cross-centeredness. The cross on which the divine human mediator hung and from which he, ro- which he rose to reign on the basis and in the power of his atoning death must become the vantage point from which we survey the whole of human history and human life. The reference point for explaining all that has gone wrong in the world and, ev- and everywhere and all that God has done and will do to put it right. And the center point for fixing the flow of doxology, that's worship, and devotion from our hearts. Healthy, virile, competent Christianity depends on clear-headedness about the cross. I want to read that again. Healthy, virile, that just means strong competent Christianity depends on clear-headedness about the cross. Otherwise, we are always (laughs) off-key. And clear-headedness about the cross, banishing blurriness of mind is only attained by facing up to the reality of Christ's blood sacrifice of himself in penal substitution for those whom the Father has given to redeem. If the band could join me on the stage. Brothers and sisters, the book of Hebrews is intended to help us to be, among other things, clear-headed about the cross. It will help us to see Christ as the all-sufficient Savior that He truly is, who we can trust, rely on, and depend on. No matter what trials and sorrows come our way. The Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Galatians, The life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That statement effectively sums up how we as a pastoral team believe that God wants to use this series to help us as a church. We believe that the Lord wants to use this series to help us to behold the supremacy of Christ, the majesty of Christ, the glory of Christ, the love of Christ, and then to respond by looking to Him in faith, and trusting Him in every situation. Because... Christian stability and faithfulness comes through clear vision of who Jesus is and what he has done. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word and in particular for the book of Hebrews. We thank you for how this book helps us to grasp with greater clarity the greatness, the glory, and the wonder of of who Jesus is. Lord, we pray together as a church that you would use this series mightily in our lives to strengthen us, to stabilize us, to give us peace. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Let's stand.